this episode of Startups to the Rest of Us, Mike and I revisit GDPR, talk about why you should strive for higher prices, and discuss more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 388. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So where this week, sir? Well, uh, MicroConf is in, what, two and a half weeks or so? Indeed. I leave for Vegas uh, two weeks from tomorrow. Yeah. So that'll be uh, definitely exciting. We've got a great lineup this year. It'll be awesome to meet all the new faces and see all the people that we've been seeing for the past several years and catch up on what they're doing and get the inside details on how things have gone over the past couple of years for them. Yep. Yeah, it's been... Um... It's been too long since I've seen some of the, you know, some of the the microconf crew. I'm looking forward to meeting several new several new people. I know obviously we'll have a lot of new attendees, but even some of our speakers like Claire Swellentrop, she's the head of marketing for userlist.io. Ankur Nagpal, he's the CEO of Teachable, will be speaking. He's just signed on recently. Uh, Justin Maris, he was co-author of the Traction book, co-owner of FOMO, and I actually, I've, we've met him several times, so it's kind of nice to have uh, have him coming. Leanna Patch, Nadia Koja, there's a really a pretty good lineup stacking up with both growth and and starter, but I was you know just mentioning the growth speakers there. So we do still have a few tickets left, and you know you and I have talked in the past. Microconf used to sell out so fast that we never had that. I think of it, it's like two, the two camel humps of ticket sales that I'd heard conferences have. And when you first launch, you sell tickets and then it goes dormant and quiet. And then about the, a month before, then you get this, you know, this second burst of, of sales. And we've never had that because we were always sold out within the first 10 minutes or whatever. But now that we've split it to starter and growth, we actually get the, I don't know, it's kind of a nice experience to see the, the sales kind of ticking up again, you know, and getting get the emails from Eventbrite saying, hey, you sold another growth, another starter ticket. But there are still a handful left to each event. So if you head to microconf.com, if you're interested in joining us in Vegas here at the end of April. Yeah, definitely check it out. And like Rob said, I mean, there's there's some tickets left. And I, I do have to agree with you. That it's nice to know that even going into the conference, you know, with a couple of weeks left to go, we still have tickets available. And you know, obviously splitting growth and starter into two separate conferences, is I, I still think was the right choice. But it also allows us to be in that position where if somebody doesn't hear about the conference or they're not sure about what their travel plans are, or their schedule looks like they'll still be able to potentially get a ticket within a month of the conference so that's it's really nice to be able to be in that position now for sure hey i wanted to give a shout out to uh, derek reimer my co-founder uh, with drip he is moving on to his next adventure and he has posted a manifesto over on his blog at derekreimer.com it's called the war on developer productivity and how i intend to win it and he in essence is um kind of calling out slack as as a tool that you know obviously it has a lot of of good uses he points out the positives but he talks pretty specifically about how it really is an interrupt driven tool and how it is definitely hurting maker maker productivity this is something he and i have struggled with for several years especially once you know when we were small we were eight people when we were acquired it, it was fine slack was fine but when we 
you know, started working with lead pages, which is 150 ish people, Slack is, is brutal. It's really hard once you get above about 20 or 30 people. So it's interesting. He's working on uh, uh, essentially a Slack competitor designed specifically for development teams. So you can, we'll certainly link that up in the show notes, but it's, it's a cool um, manifesto to read to kind of hear his thoughts. Obviously, he's a very smart guy and very capable developer and founder. And frankly, I'm on the early access list as, as well. If this is something you feel like is a, is a problem you're experiencing, he has a few ways on his, uh, on his site to sign up for that list. He did an interview with me, I think last week or the week before, and we talked about it. And it's just kind of, uh, it's fascinating the different ways that people are using Slack and, you know, the, the things that he's learned going through that process. So definitely check it out to get on that early access list and talk to him about it. Because I, I totally agree with you that Slack is just, it, it's brutal when you're trying to get things done. And the funny part that I found was that shortly after I'd had that call with him, later that day, Slack had started getting on my nerves. So I disabled it. I turned it off because there were so many things coming in. And then when it turned back on, it sent me another message to interrupt me to let me know that it turned back on. I'm like, geez, are you kidding me? <laughs> Do not disturb ended. And you received 17 messages. Yeah. The other day, I mean, and, and here, I'm not like uh, anti-Slack at all. We use Slack. I, I really do like a lot of aspects of it, but it can just really wreck your maker time. A couple weeks ago, so at night, sometimes I'll just turn it off on my desktop if I want to, you know, focus and do something. So I turn it off, you know, quit, quit it in, in the OS. And I was at work for several hours and I was like, why do I feel so peaceful? And like, I'm in the flow and everything. And I looked down and I hadn't, I hadn't enabled it. It was the next morning, you know, so it was like 11 o'clock was almost lunch. And I opened it and I thought, A, that's an interesting sign, you know, but B, I got flooded with all these notifications and then I had to go back through all the threads, you know, and figure out what I had missed. And that's, that's another issue with it, right? Is like people say, well, you're not using it right or you should just snooze it. And, you know, Derek has already pointed out how that actually isn't the, uh, that doesn't fix the, the issue. So it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. So what else is going on? Well, I have another, I have a book launch that I want to, to tell people about. If you go to myturtlebook.com, you can see a book written by my seven-year-old son. The book is called Turtles, and it's a uh, mind-blowing journey through the magical world of turtles. It's 24 pages, full color, it's print on demand, and uh, he's pretty proud of it. He spent months in Google Docs, because he's only seven, so he had to learn how to type, he had to learn how to use Google Docs, and then, you know, we turned it into a PDF, and I helped him get it up on, on CreateSpace and such. So if you go to myturtlebook.com, you can see, see the book, help support his dreams. The reason he's doing this is because he said, I want to buy the Lego Death Star, which is $400. And he gets a small allowance each month. But we said, look, we're an entrepreneurial family. You need to make something and sell it. And he had seen that his brother had written the Parents Guide to Minecraft book. And back when he'd written that, he sold, I don't know, three, four hundred bucks worth of that book. So he got motivated to do it. So, um, well, maybe not as practical as a Parents Guide to Minecraft. If you want to support my seven-year-old's journey to, uh, to, to try to get the Lego Death Star, he's selling them for eight bucks a copy. That's awesome. I mean, it's it's nice that he's got role models to look up to, not just like you and Sherry, but also his brother. And he sees that like there there actually is that path. And it's it's not something that I grew up around. I mean, like I had, you know, people who were entrepreneurs in my family, but it wasn't as if there were a great many of them and they never really talked about their business. It was always just like, oh, we go to our jobs. And that was kind of the end of it. But I think that the, the world is turning to some extent for a great many people. And it's nice to see that the career path is different that's portrayed for people. Yep. Totally. I feel the same way, man. And I, you know, I, I was in the same situation when with my family, we were not entrepreneurial at all. But uh, I do think that the, with the internet and then just with more, more entrepreneurs coming out of the woodwork, I think it's, uh, 
it's kind of cool that kids can be inspired that way these days. And lastly, I wanted to mention an email we received from the CEO of Teamwork. That's at teamwork.com. It's Peter Coppinger. Uh, he's been a, a microcom speaker a couple times and longtime listener of the show. And I actually used him as an example when we were talking about someone wrote in and said, Do I have to quit coding if I'm gonna try to scale a startup? And I said specifically, I knew that, you know, that that Peter Coppinger, CEO of Teamwork, I think $18 million, you know, annual run rate, was still writing code. And he wrote, he wrote to us and he says, Hey guys, I'm playing the new age of empires way too late. And I was surprised to hear myself mentioned that I still write code because I love it. Well, I've stopped. We did a reorg and I haven't written code in three months now. I'm spending my time on company and product strategy and it's really paying off. I do miss code and we'll probably do hackathons and a few side projects, but the business won't scale if I don't take charge and it won't scale past 18 million. So that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good point. He says, we just hired our 200th person. Things are ramping up big time. Still love the show and get tips out of it when I catch up in spurts here and there. Thanks for mentioning us occasionally. Really appreciate it. So yeah, that's it was super cool to hear from him. And so yeah, we so we there are two takeaways from here, right? We could say, well, it doesn't scale, so you eventually have to do it. Or we could say, you can build a company to 18 million in ARR and still code. Doesn't Darmesh still code? Like, I don't know whether he's, he's the co-founder. I don't know. Is he the CEO as well? He's not CEO. No, no. He and no one reports to him. Even early on, he moved into that CTO role. But yeah, he's still ha he still, you know, just floats around, does projects. I think Jason Cohen's similar with WP Engine. He's he stepped down to C, not down, but he stepped over to CTO about three years ago, maybe when they hired a, a CEO. And as far as I know, no one reports to him, and he does still himself write code. Yeah, I think it's, it just depends a lot on how you structure the business and whether you want to lead it in the team sense or if you want to lead it in the product sense. And Darmesh has chosen to lead it in the product sense and the direction is kind of pushed by the CEO and he just kind of follows suit and pushes the business in whatever way he can, you know, whether that's product strategy or research and development, stuff like that. It's like, I think the interesting thing is like that Darmesh just doesn't have anybody reporting to him. And I think you can certainly do it that way, but... You have to make a choice. I don't think you will. Yeah, he also had the luxury of having at least one co-founder and maybe two. I think it might have been founded by several people, and that gives you a little bit of the flexibility if one of the other co-founders is more either more suited or, or would prefer to be CEO, you know, more than mm -hmm. than Darmesh or more than you. I think the bottom line is just there's many ways to do it, and there's no one right way. It's how do you want to do it and what's going to work for you. Yep. And that's the thing I think we need to keep in mind, right, is we're entrepreneurs. We are. We can make our own reality to a certain extent. And if you start a company and you're running it and you hate it, then fix it. No one else can do that. Like we are in charge. You don't have a boss telling you to do stuff. And so that's something I got stuck in a lot with Drip. Is I would, we'd be slogging away, or I'd be slogging away, and I would talk to my mastermind, and I would say I'm really not enjoying it. And they'd say, Well, why not? Like this is your like it's your responsibility to figure out what you're not liking and to fix it. You know, you either hire someone to do it, or you stop doing that thing, or you do whatever you change your role. So that that's just I think a, a friendly reminder to anyone out there who's who is running your company. And if you find yourself not liking it, then then change it. You know, and maybe that means raising around. Maybe that means selling the company. Maybe that means stepping down a CEO and, and hiring a CEO if you have the budget. I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways to do it. And so good on Darmesh and Jason Cohen and Peter for basically building a company and not listening to the conventional wisdom, you know, that might say, well, you should be CEO or, you know, the founder should always be involved in this role. And it's like, no, you just do what you want. And if it works for the company, then, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah. And that's the difference between entrepreneurship and then the best practices always slash never do X. <laughs> 
Right. Yep, that's right. So we got uh, a lot of emails, voicemails, listener questions and stuff. And one was super helpful. It commented on uh, the conversation you and I had about GDPR a couple weeks ago. And it's from a listener who I, I know personally, and he is knowledgeable about GDPR. He's read the entire, the docs and is up to speed. And, and he basically brings a smackdown to us, Mike. Uh-oh. No, he doesn't really, but he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> He's, and he, he starts it off. He says, uh, you know, listen to that episode, enjoyed your conversation about it. I doubt it'll come up again. And it's dead boring, but, <laughs> and he has a few bullets. And so he has some clarifications and and other things, and I I appreciated him writing in for sure. First thing he says is the GDPR actually doesn't say that you can opt out of specific data. So you, being Rob, were right to cast some doubt when Mike brought it up, because you had said, like, if there was a Facebook pixel or a Google pixel that someone was supposed to be able to pick it. And I was like, I haven't heard that. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's in there or whatever. So he, according to, you know, his read, he said it, it's not in there. But he said you can request a processor use different subprocessors. Like if, if let's say SendGrid or, you know, you're sending through Mandrel or something wasn't compliant, someone could ask a company to use a different subprocessor. Right. So if, if they weren't compliant, so that may be the thing you were thinking of. And he also says, but you have the right to say no. For example, in, you know, a SaaS company's data processing agreement, if, if someone requested and we don't comply, you have the right to cancel your service. Right. So it's basically like if we don't comply, you, you can leave. So that, that was his first point. I realized that was kind of a long one. But does, does that make sense? It does. Like when I had said, I mean, I use the Facebook pixel as an example, but in my mind, it was like, don't track me through Facebook. It's not just the pixel. It's like anything associated with it. At least that was my understanding of it and the way that it was explained to me. So apologies to the audience if I got that wrong, but that was the way that was explained to me. So that was the way I understood it. Cool. I did hear, I talked to a founder this week who said is a bootstrap startup and doing pretty well. And he said that he went on Upwork and he hired someone who's specializing. He's like a PCI compliance guy, but he's specializing in GDPR right now. And he's going to pay the guy, it was under a thousand bucks to basically come in and write all the docs and the processes because you have to have a bunch of internal, you're supposed to have a bunch of internal docs under a grand to figure out what they need to do, you know, in terms of the software, like what changes you actually have to make and advise them and then write the internal docs. So that's actually, I mean, that personally, that's the way I would go these days if folks out there worry about it. That's a fantastic business idea to, to, to put together a system like that. Because, I mean, if you could make that into a productized service, like there's obviously lots of people who need it right now. I don't know how long it's that business will be around. That's yeah. the problem, yeah. And six, you know, under a thousand bucks just isn't enough to, to really, I mean, you need to do a lot of them. And it's probably going to be quite a bit of, I mean, it's just like consulting, right? It's consulting work, so. Yeah, but you could use that. Like even even if it's only a thousand dollars for the first couple of customers, you can always raise it to That's five or 10 or 15 or 20. Yeah. Yeah, you can go up market really quick as long as you've got the experience under your belt. But who who's going to hire you at fifty thousand dollars to come in and do that for a week or two weeks if you don't have any track record or experience? Yep, totally, I agree. All right, so the second point about GDPR, and there's only three, so it's not it's, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this. But he said also you don't have to forget your customers' customers across all accounts if they request it. That's if you're a processor. So you can imagine, you know, let's say a company like Drip as an example. So if one of Drip's customers, customers, so like an email subscriber on one of our customer lists asks us to forget their data, we'll tell that they need to reach out to our customer, their controller with the request. Cause we, I don't, we're not required to, or I don't know if we're not allowed to just do it directly and pull our customer's data out. Right. And he says, you don't have to give them contact details either. It can be a generic message, which I think is interesting. Had you heard that? 
I had not, but I'm, I was confused about how that would work, to be honest. Like, I wasn't sure, like, in that situation, what do you as the processor have to do? Like, what are your obligations? And I just, I didn't know. Right. And he says, if you're acting as a controller, though, so that would be like a drip customer, you would be on the hook for deleting or anonymizing data across all fronts. For example, you couldn't delete them from your marketing automation software, but not your billing software. Right. So that's where it could get complicated. And lastly, on the backup question, you are supposed to go back and retroactively delete records from your backups. So if you have a year's worth of records, that's a lot of one-off work fun times. So pain, I just, that's insane. I said it on the last, it's bullshit. I said it on the last podcast. I just oh, we just got the explicit rating. Good job. No, Josh, <laughs> obviously bleep out the that yeah, the second part of that. But yeah, it's just it's just fun. And you know, there's talk of of the U.S. doing something similar. But I, like I said last time, I am I would be cautiously optimistic that the small business lobby is good enough in here in the states that this wouldn't apply to small businesses. But of course, we'd have to wait and see. You ready for the next question? Yeah, go for it. All right. This is about, it's a specific question about drip and blue tick and why our pricing plans start at essentially $50 a month. It's from Chris. And he says, I was wondering if you could discuss in your podcast, your rationale for drip and blue tick and the pricing starting off at, you know, essentially 50 bucks. It's like 41 if it's annual or whatever, but you get the idea. The reason I'm asking is because nowadays for an entrepreneur starting an online business, a product at this price may not seem a big deal, but things start to add up when you include hosting, Dropbox, Google apps, and other services I already pay for. So I'd be happy to start paying five or $10 for a starter count. Then, as the business grew, I'd be fine with increasing the cost. So, for example, for a drip customer, could you make a whatever a sub five hundred or sub thousand subscriber count and just drop the price? Would that make sense with the current prices? So, I'll summarize the rest of his email. Who basically says, you know, you're losing him on the entry level because he's probably going to go to a company that has uh, like a, a free offering, right, like a freemium offering, and then he won't be as motivated to say come back to drip or maybe come back to blue tick. And then, wouldn't it be worth having a lower priced? plan, like he said, a, he said a five or a $10 plan, which that's crazy cheap for SaaS, just to get people on, you know, on the bottom end so that later on as their businesses grow, that, that they'll be a customer. He says, it's possible I'm a minority. It'd be great to hear your thoughts about this topic. You have some thoughts there? Oh, I definitely do. So my my answer to this would be no, I don't think it's worth it when you're first launching to give somebody a five or $10 plan for a starter account or something along the premium lines, because you don't have a fundamental understanding of what the market looks like and what your competitors are actually providing that's of value to your customers. And in fact, you probably don't even know exactly what your customers are actually finding valuable about your software. So to just start like competing against them on price is a really bad idea, even if you do lose some customers. Uh, the fact of the matter is that if you price your SaaS at, let's say, $50 a month and could do a starter plan at $10, you need five times as many of those people in order to make up for just one of those higher end customers. And it's a lot easier to get one customer at $50 than it is five at $10, because there's this, this gulf of trust that people have have to go through from $0 to $1 and anywhere between 1 and 20 is almost immaterial. You have to overcome a lot to go from that $0 to 1. But once you've done that, then you can get a lot farther. And that $50 a month is going to help you narrow in on the customers that are going to pay you more that will help you get the business farther and take it far enough to the point that when you are scaling it up, then you have the ability to go back and then start offering a starter plan. But I don't think you're in a position to be able to do it on day one, because what you're going to end up with is a support nightmare because you haven't figured out all the different things that go with it. 
Yep. I, I agree with that. I think there's a couple things to remember about low price plans. Number one, with almost without exception, lower price plans and lower price customers churn at dramatically higher rates, like two to three times higher rates than people who pay you a lot of money. It seems counterintuitive, but the people paying you on the low end are either consumers, they're prosumers, or they're really small, nascent businesses. Because if someone's not willing to pay you, you know, if you have a business that's generating revenue, then paying 30, 40, 50 a month is it's a rounding error. It's not much money. But the people paying you five or ten dollars, they're just starting out, as you said. Most will give up, close up shop, Go out of business, never you know, never put forth the effort, and so they're gonna they're gonna churn in two, three, four months. Like your lifetime value on those accounts is gonna be negligible, and so as a business owner, I mean, uh, trust me, I've owned businesses. You know, Hittail's low plan was ten dollars a month, and the churn on that thing was ridiculous. And that was one of the criteria after I was starting to move on from Hittail, and I said, my next business, I want the minimum plan to be ninety nine dollars a month. That's what I was saying at the time. Later, we had the leeway, and and you know, the market spoke. And there's a bunch of stuff. Once we got data, then you know we lowered it to 49. But the idea is that the churn on Drip was dramatically lower than on Hittail, not just because of the price, but that's one thing. The other thing is when you have a $10 plan, you can't afford to market that thing. Your lifetime value is, even if someone sticks around for a year, which is unlikely, you have $120 lifetime value. You can't run ads. You can't pay for content. You can't, you know, there's just, there's no money there and it cannibalizes the rest of your business, right? So if you started at 50 and you provide enough value that you get enough people at 50 and suddenly you launch a $10, $10 plan, a bunch of people will move down to that and you will just nuke your MRR. Or if you do it from the start, you will never get that. MRR. And so as a bootstrapped business where cash is, it really is king when you're bootstrapped, I always encourage folks to have higher prices and to not fall into this this trap of wanting some single digit starter plan thinking that you're just going to get thousands of people to come try it cuz cuz you're not like you're not going to get thousands of customers quickly and easily and you like you said you know between $10 and $50 you need five times more customers to make the same amount of money that's insane like the amount of support the amount of perhaps server costing i mean certainly the cost to send emails and the cost to maintain all the queues in, in a tool like drip it's a non trivial amount of money each month to support a customer and so if you have to 5x that you make a fifth of the profit. People think that, that SaaS is 100% profit margin, but it's it's not. I mean, a lot of these have real hard costs, labor being the biggest one, right, of, of support. So that's why we don't do it. I mean, we have obviously we have our free plan, Drip in particular, but I encourage bootstrappers to not have free plans. And frankly, we didn't launch the uh, the free plan until, you know, Leadpages uh, acquired Drip and Leadpages then has venture funding. So this is different if you have funding, right? You can take more risks and you can, the cash isn't so critical. And so you could tool around with trying to get a lot of people in and, and playing with that. But I, it's not uh, an approach I would recommend if you're starting out and you're bootstrapping. Yeah, I ran into an issue the other day where I was showing somebody BlueTick and they had been using a competitor and they were basically t uh, like one of my concerns was that I look around at the competitive landscape for BlueTick and I see that there are co other competitors out there that are offering what appears on the surface to be the same type of software for 20 or 30 dollars a month and in talking to this customer he had used some of those and after the discussion i came to realize that you know and these were his words he's basically said that hey this other competitor that i was using is not as advanced as blue tick and in my mind, had I not had that conversation, like I could very well have gone down the road of deciding to charge less because I wasn't aware of the value that Blue Tick is providing to them. But when you talk to somebody and they tell you flat out, yes, this is an earlier product 
and it doesn't it doesn't have all of the polish and the bells and whistles, but it's more advanced in this way, this way, and this way. You can hone in your marketing message and go specifically after those types of customers because it is going to give you more bang for the marketing dollar when you go out and do paid ads or create various marketing assets and promote them. Because you, you know that that difference between ten dollars and fifty dollars of income, it's substantial, and you can basically target five times less customers to get the same revenue. Yeah, there's a reason that when we look at at all these B2B startups or even software companies, you know, uh, that over time their prices go up. They try to go up market, right? They go from B2 prosumer to B2B to then B2 mid market to B2 enterprise and and that's where the real money is, right? It's like if you look at Salesforce and I'm trying to think of other big SaaS, like HubSpot, uh, big SaaS companies that have IPO'd, they, especially B2B ones, like they go up market, they don't go down market. It's very, very rare that someone like lowers their price or, you know, moves down into a, a free tier. Now, MailChimp is one exception and really the only one that I can think of, to be honest, because even Basecamp, which has been around forever, like they, they had a free plan at one point and they killed it and they, you know, raised prices and all that stuff. So there's a reason for that. And it's because exactly what we've just said. As you do it, you learn like, oh my gosh, it's such a headache. Our churn is too high. These customers aren't serious. The support is too high. And there's just you know such a burden of it. Yeah. And I think you realize that at a certain price point, it doesn't even make sense to have that person as a customer because they're not paying you enough to even cover your costs if you include like all the server costs and the support and everything else. It's, I, I mean, you want to help them, especially if you're a bootstrapper or a consultant or freelancer and you've been in that position, you want to build software to help those people. I, I see a lot of people doing that I, and I've done that as well. But at the same time, it actually doesn't work out that way when you throw a product out there and you start getting the hard data and feedback from people like you can't always do the things that you want to do just because there's market demands. Yeah. So good question, Chris. Really appreciate it. I hope that helps. Our next question is a voicemail that jumped to the top of the stack as they usually do. And this question is from Jeremy. Hi, Robin, Mike. Thank you for all you've done. I'm Jeremy, the founder of Mockup 3D, and I have a question about reaching out to journalists and influencers, specifically when to do it. Now, my tool is for graphic designers, so I was thinking of reaching out to some journalists, trade publications, and bloggers in that space. Now, I haven't launched yet. I'm doing some beta testing right now, and I've gotten a lot of feedback from other designers, but you can't quite pay for it yet. So my question is, do I talk to journalists now when I can give them kind of sneak peek, exclusive access, things launching, or should I talk to it later when I can start accepting paying customers? And just any other advice you might have around publicizing this beyond just doing some ads and reaching out to my mailing list. Thank you. I think if you're in a position where you're not going to be doing this splashy launch, then you have to at least seriously consider, like, why is it that you're doing this for the PR? Because you're, you're kind of casting a really wide net that it's a little bit untargeted. So let's say that you go out and, you know, there's various sites and services that you can use to essentially issue a press release, but you're not guaranteed that it's going to be picked up by anyone who's listening to those channels. I think what I'd probably recommend is identifying a couple of journalists or people who cover a specific niche, like especially one that overlaps with yours, and try to develop a relationship with them and ask them for feedback on what it is that you're doing. Don't pitch a story. Don't pitch, hey, this is my product. I'm trying to get it in front of people. Ask them like, hey, based on your expert opinion of all the different things that you see in this, this is what I'm doing. What do you think? And that changes the tone of the conversation versus you pitching something versus you asking for help. And I feel like if you go down that path, you're probably much more likely to get a story later 
on that is going to be targeted directly at the types of people that you want to be using your software versus trying to do a pitch that is essentially, it's more or less a cold email that it's very unlikely to get a response or at least a a response that you're going to be able to have any sort of control over. Um, You're not going to have any ability to control the messaging or whatever is in the press release is kind of what they're going to go with if they decide to publish it. And a lot of them are just going to ignore it. So I would go in the direction of trying to establish relationships with them and being very targeted and very specific about who it is that you talk to. And once you've done that, if you do get some of those published, then you can point to those for in the future when you do a a much splashier launch or a public launch. Yeah, I have a couple of resources I think I'd recommend. Like neither Mike and I are experts on on PR, but I have read a couple of things that I found really interesting. And if I was going to dive in and try to get PR, which is which is really hard in the, like the B two B space, right? It's like, hey, we launched Drip five years ago. Like nobody cares. It's it's really hard to get PR for that. But if you're in a vertical like you are and you're doing something truly innovative or unique that's when you can get someone to kind of pay attention. The one book one book that I would read, and I think you can listen, to, I think it's on Audible as well, it's called Newsjacking. If not, just Google Newsjacking at a minimum and read the definition. And yeah, there is a book and I, I, I'm pretty sure I, I listened to it. And it's interesting, it's about looking for things that are in the news that you can tack onto that somehow relate to your product and may or may not be related, but I like the angle of, of that, that book. And the other one is an article by Jason L. Baptiste, and it's how I pitched TechCrunch and 13 ways to get press when you launch your startup. And I always thought this was a pretty good write-up of how he you know, actually got press for his, uh, it was the pad-pressed iPad app when he launched it. And it, it's a few years old, so it, you know the stuff in here may or may not be as relevant as it once was, but Jason definitely had a good story kind of pitching, pitching them out of the blue. Keep in mind, his iPad app was, tr- was a unique thing, and you know it wasn't just another B2B app doing something similar to other people. So those are kind of the resources I'd point to. I think my advice on you know whether you pitch them before you launch or not, I would say that yes, you should pitch them before you launch because they always have lead time, right? It's like if it's a truly a magazine or a trade publication, it might be three, four months before they can get an article, even if they want to write it. And they don't want to have something go live way after it, you know, your product launches. And if it's bloggers, maybe it's, you know, only a few days, but I wouldn't contact them before I had a launch date picked because that's what they're going to want to know. When is this launching? And if you say, oh, in a few weeks, that's, that's not good. Like you want to say it's, it's launching on May 13th and I can give you an exclusive, right? Like you were saying. So that's why I would think about it, high level stuff, but I would definitely go to those, those resources and kind of dig in further. Our next question is another voicemail, and it's asking us about whether this this founder should find a new problem in the same niche that he's already in or branch out into a different niche. Hey, guys. I made an iOS and Android app that's a relatively simple calculator tool for a specific technical trade. The app sells as a one-time sale in the App Store and Google Play. And I also made a web version of the tool, which I sell as a $5 per month subscription. The marketing um, for this tool was done using several informative websites in this niche, which altogether generate about 11,000 unique visitors per month, mostly in the U.S. And since this is a relatively simple app and not a must-have, I'm interested in building something a bit more complex and up the value ladder. I want to target users in the U.S. for several reasons. One, the size of the market. Two, rules and regulations of the trade are different by country, so I think it makes sense to target a single country. I believe people in the U.S. are more accustomed to paying software subscriptions and just to keep the ideal persona a bit more delimited. I'm currently not living in the U.S., so I won't be able to have like face-to-face user conversations or interviews, which I believe are super important and just generally lead to reports, which could lead to 
my first customers. What are your views in this scenario? Do you guys think I should leverage this existing traffic and maybe find a product in this niche, even though I wouldn't be able to have face-to-face -face contact with customers or just maybe look for a, a problem in another niche in which I would be able to speak to customers face-to-face? -face. I appreciate any comments or suggestions. Thanks. I think in a case like this, I would certainly not go looking for something else if you haven't really done the research on this to see if there's another product in this niche that you can go after or, or build or develop for these people. I mean, you know, if you got this uh, website to 11,000 unique visitors a month, that's not a trivial amount. I mean, you can certainly start gathering people onto a, a mailing list. And even if you're only adding like 1% of the visitors to your mailing list, I mean, you're still adding 100, 110 people every single month just by virtue of that. And if you start following up with those people directly as they come onto your mailing list and ask them why they signed up and what other problems they're having and that you're interested in, in talking to them about them. I would think that they're going to be generally receptive to that. The other thing is I don't think you necessarily have to do like face-to-face -face conversations. I mean, obviously that's ideal, but you could certainly do them through you know, like uh, surveys of some kind. So, so obviously you don't, you don't want to ask an overbearing number of questions to them, but sh you know, with the volume of people coming through, you could install something like Hotjar, for example, and you could have pop-up polls that ask people questions. I mean, with 11,000 visitors, that's a, enough that you should be able to get people to fill out those polls and ask them questions. Questions, segment your visitors and your audience a little bit to kind of tease out exactly what other problems they are having. And then over time, you can narrow that down to something that may very well be substantial. It's also possible that nothing comes of it, but you have to put in the work and the effort in order to figure that out because we can sit here and armchair quarterback a little bit and guess, but at the end of the day, it's really data that's going to derive that decision. And you have to put in the work to do that market research to find out. Yeah, I think not being in the U.S. is not a barrier at all because Zoom and video Skype and all that stuff. I mean, you know, when I think uh, back to Derek doing uh, interviews for his new startup level, he's not flying around and seeing people. He's just doing video chat. You can do that from anywhere, right? I know there's a time zone issue, but that can be worked around. So personally, I would exhaust all possible avenues with this existing traffic source or this existing vertical and niche because you're you're already there and it's the the least amount of work there's this old saying that you should either launch a new product to an existing audience or an existing product to a new audience but the hardest thing is launching a new product to a new audience right because you have uncertainty on so many fronts when you do that so who knows maybe there are no other products that that you want to build or can build for this for this niche, but I'm, I would at least, you know, go after that first and kind of exhaust all my options before I moved on. Well, everyone, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. Uh, we'd like to do these episodes you know, as much as possible and help people with the problems that they're having. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupstherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt for We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupstherestofus.com for full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Welcome to the Startups for the Rest of Us Insiders Members Only After Show. What happens in the after show stays in the after show. We don't talk about it on Twitter, but we uh, talk about things that are completely unrelated to the podcast. Typically, we sometimes talk about movies, sometimes tell funny stories. And you, you said you had a, a story to tell. I do. So uh, I almost think we should link this up in the show notes. Apparently you didn't see it, but I tweeted this out as a picture of uh, the back of a chair. And if you look at it, there's it's the, the back of it where your back goes against it, There's three cutouts and it looks like the drip logo three times. And I commented and I said that I thought that you were taking remarketing campaigns to a whole new level that even Zuckerberg would be proud of. And then I said, that said, where's GDPR when you need it? <laughs> nice. I'm looking at the tweet now. That's cool. Yeah, we should definitely link that up. So that's funny, man. Yep. It was just interesting. Like I've been over to their house a bunch of times and I it always obviously like reminds me of the drip logo, but I've never really, I've never stopped to actually take a picture of it. And I was like, yeah, what, what the heck? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. But that would be awesome if you did that. Though. I know. I, mean, I, I can imagine people would pay a lot of money for that. Put it on the backs of chairs that, Hey, maybe that's your next startup idea after blue tech. Yep. Especially if you're like tracking people down at, uh, you know, Easter dinners or Easter bunches. <laughs> for sure. Cool. Well, we, uh, we were also going to chat about, the Justice League movie. I just watched it on an airplane last week. How about you? Did you see it in the theater? Yeah, I saw it. So we have a second run theater here in town that serves beer and pizza and popcorn and all sorts of stuff. So it's it's like $6 for the movie itself. And then you can get small, medium, large popcorns for one, two or $3. I mean, it's dirt cheap. It's a fantastic theater. Their seats could use some work, but it kind of adds the atmosphere as well. So it's nice to go there and be able to take the whole family and spend like 20 or 30 bucks for everything and watch a movie and eat dinner and everything else. So yeah, that's where we watched it. Cool. So talk to me. Obviously, this is going to be have a lot of spoilers. And when we talk about movies, we um, talk about the plot and stuff. But did you like or not like the movie? I did like it. It was definitely better than I had thought it was going to be, you know, because I think that if you look at DC versus Marvel movies, just in general, Marvel has a much better, I'll say, feel for what's going to be successful. Like I I did not have high expectations. And after watching it, I'd heard negative things. Yeah, I heard a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, you know, they, they really needed to have a couple of other either spinoff movies or something along those lines. And I get where they're coming from, but I feel like there's certain characters in the DC universe that are probably more well-known than some of the ones in the Marvel universe. I mean, there's lots of, I'll say fringe characters in Marvel that like you've never heard of, or you've never seen before because there was never a, a reference to them or there's never a cartoon about them or anything like that. And with DC, like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, it's like they're kind of main characters. Same with the Flash and Green Lantern. Not the Green Lantern showed up, but I, I don't feel like there's as much of an explanation or background needed for those kinds of things. Like you kind of expected to have some of that background when you walk into the movie anyway. It's like, it's almost like Star Wars. You're not going to walk in and watch Empire Strikes Back and have not have watched some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, DC hasn't dipped yet into their kind of second and third tier heroes where Marvel obviously has with all the stuff on Netflix and, uh, you know, they're, I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy, the movie, I mean, then these were really good properties, like obviously the, you know, the Daredevil and even the uh, kind of the Iron Fist and the Defenders stuff on Netflix, as well as, as Guardians of the Galaxy are really good. These are legit things that, that worked out in my opinion. I mean, they're, they're of decent quality, but the Defenders, I just, before the show came out, I could not give a crap about them. Like I never read the comic. I barely knew about Power Man or Iron Fist, like just was not that interesting or even jessica jones i'd never even heard of her and i really enjoyed most of those i heard i didn't watch iron fist i heard it was awful but i am watching power man and and i'm enjoying it and i watch jessica jones so all that to say i think marvel is kind of ahead of dc in terms of getting into their 
you know, tier B and, and C comic properties. I would agree with you that I had heard negative things about Justice League, the movie. I thought it was okay. It was a fine airplane movie, but I, the jokes fall, the jokes are nowhere near as good as the Marvel stuff. Like the, the writing is really different. And the movie just felt like a straightforward kind of action film with the, you know, the aliens or the monsters come and then they kill them and it, it happens. And I feel like what Marvel has done so well is they throw in the humor and they, I mean, even if there aren't big plot twists, at least I'm entertained because it's funny. And I know some people have an issue with that, right? They didn't like, like Thor Ragnarok has is like joke after joke. I mean, it's almost like a, a an action comedy or something. And if that's not your style, then you, you know, you won't like that movie. But Guardians of the Galaxy, I think made that, you know, made that uh, work as well. So yeah, I thought Justice League was fine. I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, like my son, my 11 year old who watches a lot of the Marvel movies, he said, should I see Justice League? And I was kind of like, I don't, I don't think you're going to care about it. You know, it takes itself a little too seriously from my uh, kind of movie viewing perspective. But DC has always been like that, like just in general, like the genre of like of comics and stuff that DC has always done have always taken themselves fairly seriously. It's always very black and white. And uh, like, don't get me wrong, there's some characters that are, you know, have very gray side of things. But with Marvel, like they definitely don't take themselves seriously. They definitely poke fun of themselves and various other characters versus like you don't really get. Batman and Superman, like making fun of each other, or making jokes about each other. Like you can kind of get like at the end of like the outro of the movie, they had the extra scene where the Flash and Superman were racing across the continent. And that was kind of funny, but it felt to me like they were trying too hard to be Marvel. And I feel like that's the same thing problem that a lot of people have is that DC is lagged behind in a lot of the movies. And then, you know, as Marvel comes out, they're like, oh, we've got to catch up. And then they try to catch up. And not only did they do they copy the jokes and try to do that and they don't do a good job of it, but then they also fall flat when they're trying to come out with like, oh, let's bring all these characters together in a big movie. And it's just like they do it without a lot of lead up. And the problem is they're not good at setup. Like Marvel is fantastic at setup. Like they've spent the last 10 years setting up the Infinity Wars movie and Justice League did it in what, like two movies in three years or something like that. It's just it feels haphazard. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Think about how many movies there were before the Avengers came out. You know, setting up all those characters and then putting them together. That's tough. I feel like DC's, you know, the underdog. DC kind of in the in the golden age of comics, DC was the 800-pound gorilla and Marvel was kind of the sidekicker they also ran. And then that switched in the Silver Age. And the Golden Age was the, basically the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And the Silver Age starts in, I believe it starts with Amazing Fantasy 15, First Appearance of Spider-Man. Oh, no, it might be Fantastic Four number one, which it, it's like 1961-62. And that runs for, I don't know, 10 years or something into the, into the 70s. And Marvel took the lead. And it's because of, from what you said, it, it was more human. You know, like Spider-Man had weaknesses and struggled with self-confidence and he was a high school kid and he was a nerd and that was never part of the DC universe, right? The heroes were Superman and Batman and while they had these stories and they faced adversity, they don't feel superhuman. They do feel superhuman. They don't feel extremely, you know, as human as the... Uh, They're not as relatable. Yep, as, as the Marvel character. And that's something Stanley was really deliberate, you know, deliberate about. You know, have you seen the Lego Batman movie? I did. That was funny. I liked it. Hilarious. Talk about a DC. I mean, I was dying. That movie was hilarious. Like that's, I don't know. They, they obviously couldn't go that far over the top with a, you know, with a DC movie that wasn't a Lego movie, but I would rather watch that than, than Justice League for sure. 
Yeah, I, I thought that was way better than Justice League, to be honest. I mean, it's just they did really, really well with it. The jokes were, were awesome. And of, of course, like they can do a lot with special effects and stuff with, you know, a Lego movie because it's all animated. But, you know, they've got a lot of a lot of characters to choose from that they can put in there without having to blow their entire budget on actors that, quite frankly, don't bring a whole lot to the table. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I'm off base here, but I don't think Ben Affleck is like the person who brings people to go see a Batman movie. Like, that's just not it. Yeah. Another movie that I saw recently was uh, Jumanji, the remake. Okay, I haven't seen it yet. It's it's in the watch list for the kids. How was it? It was it was really really good. Good. So we thought we saw that at the second run theater, and there's adult humor in there that you will understand that your kids will not, but you will still laugh. Perfect. It's, it's quite okay. entertaining. They did. It's one of the few instances where I can look at a remake of a movie, and the remake is better than the original. That's cool. Awesome. That's good to hear because it's like I said, it's in our Amazon watch list. And as soon as it right now, it's buy for 20 bucks. But as soon as it's rentable, I'm going to rent it. And then the other one that I've and I've heard really good things about it. The other one that I've heard phenomenal things about is Paddington 2. Have you heard about this? No, it I had haven't. like it had like a rotten. I don't know what the Rotten Tomatoes is right now. I'll look it up. But the Rotten Tomatoes rating was like 99 percent. It was like one of the highest rated movies of all time. Let's see where it is. now. Wow. Yeah. The Tomatometer is a hundred percent the tomatometer, the tomatometer yeah. <laughs> and all critics every critic rated it like really high so the audience score is 89 percent, but the i think it's the critic one is is a hundred percent so and i'm just like what like a it's a sequel of a you know about a bear that like I, you never really cared about is it you know i never really got into paddington but so that's also on my list yeah, I don't know if my how into it my eleven year old will be, but I'm hearing that even like as as grown ups that it's that it's worth doing. So I'll I'll check it out and report back. Cool. I'm just wondering what uh, the new Jumanji movie did on Rotten Tomatoes, and yeah, this says seventy six percent fresh and eighty eight percent liked it. So okay, reasonably good. I, I think the actors like really did a fantastic job with it. They they cast them really well, and the the lead actress in it, she is she's also in Guardians of the Galaxy. I forget what she. The blue woman that she plays, um, I can't remember her name. Yep. Yep. I know who you're talking about. Is it Gamora? Gamora, yes. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's um, Gamora's sister. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember. Nebula. That's what it is. Nebula, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, like, but all four of the actors, they do a phenomenal job. And it, and it does throw back to, like, the old Jumanji movie. So if you've seen that, then you'll recognize certain things from it that are throwbacks to the old movie. Cool. I don't think I ever saw the original. I know that's probably blasphemy for the kid grew up in the 80s. Wasn't it in the 80s that it came out? I think so. It was either yeah. 80s, 80s or early 90s. Early I think it was 90s. 80s. Yeah, I didn't see it. So, so oh well. Cool, man. I think we'll wrap it up for today. All righty. Well, take it easy. Let's talk to you later. You too. Later.